Hello, pals. Uh, we are here in my closet again for another True Crime Tuesday. Um, filmed, well, recorded on Tuesday, so I didn't procrastinate at all on this one. Actually, I really didn't. I kind of started researching it about two weeks ago, and, uh, the editing. <laughs> There's a lot of information on this, and I wanted to make sure I got it right, so... Um, because this is already, this whole thing is basically a massive corrections corner, and so I'm just trying to fix myself. Um, I will preface this with the fact that the following episode will contain more religion in it than I'm used to, you know, because usually the whole rules of not talking about religion, but that, um... The religion of a lot of the people in this case does actually affect, um, what I believe to be the outcome. So, um... I would just like to say, uh, right off the rip, that I, myself, am not particularly, re- woo, particularly religious. Um, I grew up in a family with several religious beliefs, uh, Christianity, I'm agnostic, and my mom is actually a pagan. So, at the end of the day, I've kind of just chosen not to choose. Uh, I'm very open to religion, and I'm interested in learning about it, but it just, it is not my cup of tea, which is fine, it doesn't have to be. Um, I do live by one fundamental rule, and that is called don't be an asshole. So, I don't care what you do with your life in any aspect, as long as you're A, not hurting anyone, and B, you're not trying to force me or anyone else to do what you're doing. So, you don't do any of that, we get along perfectly fine, and I think that's how everybody should live their life. So, you know, uh, you're pro-life, cool, you want to be a devout Catholic, awesome, you're transgender, like, sweet, do it. I literally could care less, you do you, I'll do me, as long as you don't try to decide my life and my decisions, we can be BFFs till the end of the day, because I literally don't care. Okay, so, with that being said, um, I'm pretty easy going on the religious front and realistically my beliefs don't matter or look to anything but I guess I'm just saying that I come into this with a very open mind and it's good to be you know I'm not rooting for one side or the other so I'm very uh very Switzerland on this case uh actually maybe a little bit defensive of the side you wouldn't expect so Today, we are going to be covering the Lily... Wow, what happened there? The Lily Lynn murders. So, this is a crime that I had attempted to briefly summarize for a Satanic Saturday, and the problem with that is that this crime really can't be summarized that easily, and I had gotten some, most, of the details wrong, and luckily for me, Douglas Cavanaugh, who runs the Justice Justice for Karen Howell Facebook page, let me know of my mistake, and was helpful enough to point me in the right direction of some really helpful information. So, thank you uh, for that. So, in this podcast, I am going to A, correct my previous mistake and might make right by that, and B, spread awareness of something I wasn't even aware of and something that we in the true crime community can use to grow and generally do better. So, as part of the research for this, I rewatched an episode of Occult Crimes that I had seen. To be fair, they do get um, a decent amount of, like, the, f- the unbiased facts correct. Uh, so it was a decent research, and if, well, and if you want unbiased, you're going to have to dig a little deeper. Um, 
it, if actually, it's really interesting if you read news articles from the time and then also read um, statements. The documentary was cool because it had uh, Madonna Wallen in it, which is Natasha's mom. We'll I'll explain that later. But she it was actually giving um, her own testimony. Well, not testimony. It was like her interview. And that was really interesting. Um, she seems like a very interesting woman. Um, ooh, excuse me. So... So the beginning of everything always starts off with a tragedy, and every single documentary I watched, it's like, on April, blah, 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 blah. We're not, no, we're going to start at the beginning and work our way to that, because there are more victims in this case than just the people who got murdered. So, which sounds weird to say, but there, there were more than four lives destroyed this day, and mostly just from people being in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong people. So, let's go on. So, to start off, uh, the oldest, on October 13th, 1976, Joseph Frisner is born in Hazard, Kentucky. He never knew his biological father and had adopted his stepfather's last name. His family had originally lived in Columbia, Kentucky, but they moved to Georgia when Joseph was in fourth grade. His mother and stepfather separated, and Joseph and his mom moved back to Kentucky, an event that Joseph would say later affected him pretty negatively. He began using marijuana, alcohol, and LSD, and he claimed to have sexual relationships with babysitters at the fresh age of 12. He failed 7th and 8th grade, and by 10th grade, he had kind of gotten his grades together and attended Betsy Lane High School. And in June 1995, Risner joined the Army, but was discharged pretty quickly afterwards after failing a drug test. On May 29, 1996, Risner had earned his GED and was accepted into the Mayo Regional Technical Center in uh, September of 1996. So his connection to the group was that he was dating Karen Howell, which we'll get there. Uh, Dean Mullins was born in Harold, Kentucky in 1978. He had left high school when he was a senior but um, had been in the works of acquiring his GED at the time of the incident. He had been working at a grocery store in Pikeville, Kentucky. Several of his friends would say that his behavior declined after he met and started dating a girl named Natasha Cornett, whom he planned on marrying. He had no criminal record. On January 26, 1979, Natasha Wallen, who had become Natasha Cornett, was brought into the world. Her mother was Madonna Wallen, who was married to her husband, Ed, obviously. Um, however, Ed was not Natasha's biological father. Her real father was a local policeman named Roger Burgess. Roger vehemently denied that he was Natasha's dad. Natasha had been born with a congenital heart defect and underwent surgery to repair the hole in her heart when she was only 16 months old. While Natasha was young, Madonna and Ed split up. Madonna became a single mother raising Natasha on her own in a trailer just outside of Pikeville, Kentucky. So things were hard, but they... Things were harder for Natasha and Madonna, but things were about, things got harder. Money was even tighter than it had been before him. Um, when it came time for Natasha to start school, Madonna sat her down and told her who her real father was to save her the embarrassment of finding out something that everyone in the town already knew. It was common knowledge that Roger was Natasha's dad, but nobody had, no, nobody had told Natasha yet, and Madonna really didn't want her to go to school and have people saying things to her that she didn't even know about. So she broke the news to her. Um, so Roger actually refused to acknowledge Natasha, um, even after she knew who he was, leaving her with emotional wounds and rejection at a very young age. So there were psychologists who, t uh, who mentioned that, 
you know, it wasn't like he was just some stranger. He was in her town. He, you know, they'd run into each other at the grocery store. She knew and he knew who she was, even though he denied it. And he refused to acknowledge her. So not only did she have a stepdad and mom that got, or not a stepdad, but her, her, well, yeah, I guess kind of a stepdad, Ed and Madonna had divorced and split up. And then she also had a dad that refused to acknowledge her. That couldn't, you know, that wouldn't feel very nice. So because of all this, it drove Natasha to distrust society is also what psychologists say about that. Um, in seventh grade, Natasha struggled with anorexia. She lost 30 pounds in one month. Um, when evaluated psychologically, it was determined that she suffered from anorexia as well as bipolar disorder. It was suggested that Madonna check her into a mental facility. And so Madonna actually describes this in the documentary, how she took Natasha to the institution under the premise of just checking it out and then left her there. So it's an incident um, Madonna feels Natasha will always hate her for. I guess she was very, well, I mean, I get, how mad would you be if your mom was like, let's just go look at this mental facility and then leaves you there. So obviously that didn't go over very well. On top of that, medical insurance only covered 11 days. So not only was she pissed that her mom left her at a mental institution, but she got kicked out well before she was supposed to be. Like she wasn't even, she probably was still mad from being left there, let alone not dealing with any of her other psychological issues or going to therapy. And then she gets sent back into the real world. Um, and no one in Pikeville knew how to help Natasha. So she was out on her own again, against the advice of medical professionals, but they couldn't do more for her um, because there was no way to pay for it. So she was prescribed pills to help with her imbalance, but they were very expensive, and Natasha didn't like the way they affected her, saying her that they made, saying that they made her feel worse, which I completely understand. So during her freshman year of high school, after feeling alienated from her peers, Natasha dropped out of school. <clears throat> on January 26th, 1996, Natasha's 17th birthday, she married her good friend Stephen Cornett in what Madonna described as a, quote, goth wedding. But he ended the marriage six months after it started, and Natasha was devastated. In her teens, and especially after her failed marriage, Natasha had a great appreciation for the goth subculture, such as wearing dark clothes and listening to even darker music. She was abusing drugs, um, for example, heroin, ecstasy, and cocaine, alcohol, and herself, but these were all things she had done since a young teen. So they were, these were, this was a lifestyle she had already began living, but it got, I guess, worse the older she got. Um, she said in interviews that she felt like she could never make her mom happy and recounted a story of trying to smother herself with blankets when she was three or four. And Madonna admits to getting physical, saying she never hit Natasha with her fists, only with open hands. I don't think that makes it any better. And um, Crystal, which we'll get to in a second, uh, stated that she distinctly remembers Madonna hitting Natasha with a Bible on one occasion. So Natasha was pegged the ringleader of this group of teens. Um, I don't know if that's because of in the future you'll see how her defense lawyer her first defense lawyer paints her um it just seemed like she attracted like-minded people and maybe through her friendship and relationship she was the one who kind of brought this gang together uh I don't know if I'd call her like the ringleader though per se she doesn't even know why she was named the ringleader so I guess we'll never know that answer 
So, Crystal Sturgill was born on May 13, 1979 in Harold, Kentucky. Her mom, Teen Blackburn, refused to give up the name of Crystal's father, and his name doesn't even appear on the birth certificate. She attended Betsy Lane High School and also attended Floyd County Technical School. Her grades weren't the best, but she blamed it on drugs and alcohol, um, and she scored really highly on standardized testing. So, she scored a 28 on her ACT, something I couldn't even do it. I studied for it. She also had her choice of college to attend. Um, she received several acceptance letters. She had no criminal history, but uh, she had been suspended from school several times. In December of 1996, Crystal accused her stepfather of historic sexual abuse. He admitted to having sex with her 10 times while she was growing up. Crystal's family actually sided with the stepdad and cut uh, Crystal out of their life. So she moved in with Natasha Wallen for a lack of anywhere else to go. By January, she had moved in with her aunt in Prestonburg and went to Prestonburg High School. But right after she started, she had to move out. Uh, Crystal lived in 13 different places between the allegations against her stepdad and when the crimes occurred in April. She was good friends with Edward Mullins, but disapproved of his relationship with Natasha. On September 25th, 1979, Karen Howell was born in Delaware, Ohio. At the age of three, her family moved to Kentucky. Her parents divorced when she was nine, but not before a series of severe and violent fights occurred between them. Her parents ultimately divorced because of, the f of her father's drinking, and afterwards, her mother had a nervous breakdown. Karen was recorded as having an IQ of 78, which by definition is borderline retarded. Karen is said to have been sexually assaulted between the ages of 5 and 10 by an uncle and her cousin, and therefore was scared of relationships. By 13, she was practicing self-mutilation, and was living in a chaotic household with her mother until she was 14. She had a resistance to rules and regulations, illegal drug use, and runaway behavior. She had the inability to function in school and an interest in witchcraft, which was signified by her use of a Ouija board and what is called automatic writing. So I had to look that up. Um, it's the claimed psychic ability which allows a person to produce written words without consciously writing, which, so she was doing that. Karen's mom um discovered that she did this and provided these papers to ministers um and then these guys tried to quote cast out the demons so was karen exercised i have no idea i tried to look um okay how traumatizing do you think that would be when she was young to have ministers try to cast the demons out of you when you're just a misunderstood teenager i don't know so by her early teens, um, the, uh, sorry, Karen was taking drugs, LSD, and prescribed, oh, she described having a bad trip where she tried to chew her friend's arm off. Howell said she loved to, or she tried to create love spells to get boys to date her and that she heard voices. Karen moved in with her dad shortly after her first semester of high school, so when she was 14. He rarely communicated with her and she dropped out of high school. She continued to try and earn her GED. She had attempted suicide four times in the past, twice by cutting her wrists and twice by drug overdose. She met a good friend, Natasha Cornett, and her boyfriend, Joseph Risner, at school. So Karen was dating Joseph Risner. And then the youngest of the group, uh, Jason Bryant, was born July 18, 1982, in Hellier, Kentucky. He had an IQ of 85 and even at the age of 14 was intellectually an 11-year-old. His father was an alcoholic and his mother abandoned the family when he was young. He had a history of drug use that started at three years old, um, and he had met Natasha Cornett randomly in Pikeville about a month before the murders. He, along with Karen, were legal minors on April 6, 1997. 
So the gang had ended up in high school together, and if they, it was described as if they, if one person did a thing, they all did the thing. So they protected each other. And they truly had a lot in common. They all came from broken homes with failed support systems. Members of the group had clearly had untreated or unrecognized mental health issues. They all most likely felt rejected by their society. They all also most likely had had teenage angst. But because of their own unique situations, these were amplified. It makes a lot, it makes a lot of logical sense. Sure, they protected each other because they had to. They had each other's back when no one else had theirs. So... I hash this out. I mean, listen, we've all been angsty teenagers. Some of us more recently than others. Um, It's possible these people were living the goth lifestyle to draw attention to themselves or alternatively steer people clear from them. It would make sense that they would want to shock and horrify people after all the abuse they individually suffered. It would also make sense that they would also be so tight-knit they understood things that the others did not. But, on the other hand... Individuals like that have targets. Anything that's abnormal has a predator. They needed to stick together and to have that pack mentality so they didn't get harmed as an individual. And after I wrote that, all I could think of is live together, die alone, which is a saying from like one of the best TV shows ever, Lost. Um, so they really had that mentality. They, they needed to stick together because they were the only people that understood each other and they were the only people that could handle that with themselves. Like, I mean, I didn't have nearly as rough of a a growing up as these people did, but I still went through my, like, emo punk phase. Like, I had coontails in my hair, and, like, I wore studded belts, and, you know, I look at that now, and I, I do not dress like that anymore, and it's fine if you still do, but for me, that was just a phase, and, you know, I feel like you're judging teenagers too harshly. This is the time where you know, self-expression and finding yourself is kind of the point, you know, like dye your hair silly colors, get, you know, I mean, don't do anything permanently damaging, but, you know, try stuff out, wear crazy eyeliner, wear big studded belts and crazy makeup, like this is the time to get that out and to find out who you are because, you know, you don't want to end up being 30 years old and not know like what skin you're supposed to be in if that makes sense so I completely understand this and I I think parts of this case get pushed way too hard when it might have just been teenagers trying to express their emotions you'll see so there were allegations they were highly into satanism and the occult which will in my opinion come into um, play later so I went down you guessed it a rabbit hole um, on Satanism. (laughs) I wanted to have, like, a good description of what Satanism is, and the more I read, the more it was like, oh, this applies. I know what Satanism is. I wanted, like, a good, concisely worded description of what it was, and then I went down this rabbit hole, and let's go. So, several theology scholars agree that Satanism, quote, has a history of being a designation made by people against those whom they dislike. It is a term for othering. Satanism as something others do is different than like a self-designation. So if you call someone else a Satanist, it has a different feel and means something a little different than me saying, I am a Satanist. So Satan in the Old Testament originally meant the adversary. David was the Satan in the Philistines 
And um, it was also used in the Old Testament as a verb meaning to oppose. It wasn't until the New Testament that Satan became the name of an angel that had rebelled against God and, be- and had been cast out of heaven. It is then that Satan is fe- featured as a figure who tries to tempt humans to commit sin. So, the word Satanism doesn't appear in the English and French languages until the 1500s, where it was then used by Christian groups to attack other rival Christian groups. As used in this manner, the term Satanism was not used to claim that people literally worshipped Satan, but presented the view that through deviating from whatever the speaker or writer um, regarded was the true variant of Christianity, they were regarded as essentially in the league with the devil. So if you don't believe in my version of Christianity, even though you're still Christian, you're a Satanist. Sure, that makes so much sense. So during the 19 or during the 1800s, sorry, the term Satanism begins to be used to describe those considered to lead a broadly immoral lifestyle. It was only in the late 19th century that it came to be applied in English to individuals who were believed to consciously and deliberately worship Satan. So the term Satanist is quite new in the whole term of things, at least in regards to what it means today. Uh, so have so I thought you know that seemed kind of funny that uh is being <laughs> that's like the the journey of Satanism and they're calling these teens Satanists you know okay so the, all this has kind of been leading up to a point I've painted you the picture of the six teens and the backgrounds they come from which are all pretty grisly and sad um, these teens are not in an ideal environment for them to grow and to succeed. Um, they are painted as these awful, you know, Satan-worshipping, goth teens. It, it, remin- it feels a lot like, do you remember when everybody was blaming Marilyn Manson for uh, just everything, basically? Everything bad in the world is, like, blamed on Marilyn Manson and all that. N- no, it's because he's different. There's no other... Marilyn Manson never did anything to, like, turn people evil. He didn't. It just, it was, that was the thing. That's the thing that people did. This is kind of the same flavor of that, like, you're different and you're weird and you dress strangely. I don't understand you and I'm scared of you. Is very much this, what we're building up to. So, the teens were obviously marginalized by their hometown. They were ostracized and made fun of. They came up with a plan to get away they were going to go to New Orleans. Understandable. Get the hell out of your rural Kentucky town. It's not going to end well for you if you, you know, get out. Cool. I support that. Um, they chose New Orleans because after Natasha's husband left her, she and her friend traveled to Lexington to find him, but they uh, didn't succeed in finding him. So this road trip turned into the girls going to New Orleans where they stayed for a month. They slept in abandoned houses and hung out with gutter punks, which I thought was a dirty word. I still feel like that's probably a dirty word. But if you Wikipedia that word, it means a homeless person or transient that displays characteristics associated with the punk subculture. Uh Uh-huh. Sounds dirty still. Natasha and her friend uh, took part in drug use, uh, predominantly heroin, and also visited a tarot card reader, which supposedly told Natasha something along the lines of, you're going to do big things. Uh Uh-huh. So Natasha fell in love with New Orleans, um, the vibe she got from there, the people she really liked, and she thought it could offer them a good escape from their godforsaken hometown. 
Understandable. So, on April 6, 1997, they won an action. So, they had stolen money for the trip. Uh, they also had two stolen guns, a 9mm and a pistol. Uh, one had been stolen from Karen's dad by Jason Bryant. The other came from a friend of Dean Mullins. The car they were driving was a Chevy Citation taken without permission from Joe Risner's mom. They had guns, they said, because their ideal plan was to, at some point, carjack another car. So, shortly after leaving Pikeville, they realized Risner's car wouldn't sustain a long trip. It was also tiny and cramped, so they were going to steal a car from a parking lot or, like, a dealership. Cool. So, they stopped at a rest stop along I-81 outside Balington, Tennessee, um, which is about 125 miles away from Pikeville, and the trip to New Orleans was almost 800 miles in total. So, they literally had done about an eighth of the trip, and they were already stopping for a break because they couldn't handle being in the car that long. I'm assuming. So now we enter enter the stage, the Lily Lid family. So um, Vidar is the father. He's 34. His wife is Delphina. She's 28. Tabitha is their daughter. She's six. And they have a two-year-old son named Peter. Um, Vidar was from Bergen, Norway. He moved to the United States in 1985. And in 1989, he married Delphina Zelaya, who was the first-gen um, Honduran-American who was born in New York City. So the couple were Jehovah's Witnesses, which we'll talk about later, and their connection, um, that was how they met. They were both Jehovah's Witnesses. So the the Lily Lid family was at the rest stop along I-81 just outside of Baileyton, stretching their legs and having a picnic. They are returning from a convention to their home located um, in a suburb just outside of Knoxville. So they were over an hour away from home, just about an hour away from home. So Vidar... Being such a wonderful man, saw the troubled teens and approached them outside the bathroom at the rest stop. His religion is important here um, because Jehovah's Witnesses are known for their efforts to spread their beliefs, and who could benefit more to hear the the word than these insanely dressed goth kids? Understandable. So unfortunately for Vidar and his young family, Joe Risner and Natasha noticed the Lily Lid's large, spacious van. Natasha and Joe pretended to be interested in Vidar's conversation. Um, at one point, it said that Vidar had asked Natasha if she believed in God, and she said, no, he never answered any of my prayers when I was little. They both wanted to steal the van, um, but didn't want to do it in such a public place. Um, Delphina returned from the bathroom with Tabitha. Risner pulled the 9mm and said, we just want your van, and forced the family into the van, and, you know, they took off with it. So, um, Vidar is driving. Joe is in the front seat with a gun pointed at him. Natasha, Carrot, and Jason are also in the van. Jason has the other gun. Uh, Delphina and Tabitha were in the furthest back seat of the van, and um, Peter was in his booster seat. Crystal and Dean followed the van um, to the remote location in the citation. Um, what happens next is a little up to speculation. Um, everyone involved tells a different story, so uh, this part is based off of facts. And basically, the autopsies in the crime scene. So, um, the van and citation came to a stop at an exit uh, up the highway, Payne Hollow Lane, near Greenville. The, li- the Lily Lid family was lined up against a ditch along the road where they were shot multiple times. So, Vidar had been shot six times, once in the head and five times in the chest. Three of the gunshot wounds were deliberately fired to form an equilater- equilateral triangle, which that's a quote. Most likely, Vidar was on his back on the ground. 
Delphina had been shot eight times, once in her left arm, once in her left thigh. She was shot six more times while lying on her back, um, and three of those shots, again, were making an equilateral triangle similar to the one found on Vidar. Tabitha had been shot once in the head. She was brain dead, but was um, held on life support. She died the next day after her uncle, who was uh, granted her to be her custodian, um, gave permission to donate her internal organs. Peter had been shot once in the head and once in the back. Um, when the crime scene was discovered, he was found alive and sent to the hospital. Eleven days after the shooting, they removed his damaged eye. Uh, Peter is still alive today, and while handicapped, is said to live a relatively normal life with his aunt and uncle. Um, when they were found, Tabitha's body was laid across her father's to form a cross, and Peter was laid across his mother to um, in the same fashion. The Lily Lids minivan was gone, and the driver had actually ran over the family's legs when they backed up to pull away, and the Chevy Citation was left at the crime scene. The bodies were found relatively quickly. For as remote of a location as the teens thought they were in, they were literally less than 100 yards away from a home, and um, they, the owners of that home had called the police for a noise disturbance when the gunshots were fired. So the police came very quickly, or at least relatively quickly. quickly. So after the murders, the plan changed. The teens were no longer going to go to New Orleans. They were going to try and get out of the country. The plan now was to go to Mexico. However, this plan wasn't thought through as they weren't allowed to enter Mexico without proper documentation. They were detained and forced back in the United States, and they were arrested in Douglas, Arizona. So the Chevy citation that left at the scene had all kinds of identifying information in it. Also, it was, it was stolen from Joe Risner's mom who had told the police that she did not allow them to use the car. So they knew who they were looking for, and they they basically heard they got detained in Arizona, and they took them. Like, it, it was very easy to catch them. They did not cover the tracks good enough. So uh, cars were arranged that all the teens would be brought back home separately. So after they were caught, everyone had a different story. Jason Bryant said he never knew what was going on during the trip and said that Joseph Risner and Dean Mullins were the shooters. He also said that he was in shock during and after the crime and couldn't offer many details. Natasha Cornett, Karen Howell, and Joseph Risner disagreed, and they said that Bryant was a sole shooter and that he emptied both handguns into the family while the others watched in horror. Natasha and Karen corroborated that Natasha tried to stop Jason, attempting to at least save the children, um, so she had she had gotten between Jason and the family and only stepped out of the way when he promised not to shoot the kids, which obviously still happened. Um, Risner admitted that he ran over the bodies as they were fleeing in the van, so he was the driver of the van, but he insists that running over the legs was an accident, and Karen and Natasha said that it was intentional, and Risner laughed as he did it. It was, and still is, kind of difficult to determine who is telling the truth and what parts of the story are truth and what are lies. So, on April 15th, 1997, is when all the legal processes started. See, I told you, it didn't take very long for them to catch and go to trial. Uh, so, this is where religion gets kind of brought back into it. Greenville is a very religious town. Um, upon the teens' arrival into the city, people were shouting and jeering at them, calling them baby killers, amongst worse names. Uh... So, mind you, by 1997, the satanic panic was kind of over, um, but it was still very fresh in everyone's minds. So, Natasha's first lawyer really damaged her case. Uh, she had been dubbed the ringleader, uh, but it may have been because of her lawyer's malicious intent 
that's why if you read anything about um any correspondence with natasha she she denies that she was the ringleader she doesn't know why she was ever said like why she was ever dubbed that um but uh natasha's lawyer eric khan had volunteered to represent natasha but then immediately began negotiating movie rights she had no idea it was even happening until it was too late because she had no access to the news so he would go on the news saying that she was a satan worshiper and all these awful things and he had coached her to say that she was the daughter of satan at least it's what natasha says now and she never had any idea like what how he was painting her in the defense until uh, it was way too late for her once she found out that was the case uh she was able to drop him as a as her defense lawyer and got a new one so uh yeah he heavily pushed the satanic and occult parts of the trial whether they were embellished or not and she had extended time frame to find another lawyer a better lawyer so there was a trial but there really wasn't a trial um the teens were all backed into a corner to sign a plea bargain although the majority of the group agreed on the real killer everyone except jason who was the guy who everybody was pointing to be the real killer uh it's the idea that everybody wanted to prosecute a gang of evil satanists and they wanted them all to pay for the actions so the media was encouraged to see them as a group not individuals so berkeley bell the district attorney didn't want to hear about their tormented childhoods economic depression borderline personalities or anything else that seemed like an excuse he firmly believed and still believes that the murder was a satanic ritual so this is they had an interview with this woman named Kenetta Pratt on she's a criminal investigator she was on the occult crimes like tv show cool so while I was watching this I literally had to pause it because I wanted to start yelling at her okay so like I had said previously my mom is pagan so she she believes in all that cool so I kind of have a, a familiarity with the symbolism and that cool so she goes off on some tangent saying that the bullet marks from okay so if you remember (laughs) i'm about to go on a rant even though i told myself i wouldn't do this so if you remember delphina and vidar had two equilateral triangles shot into them okay so this canetta pratt woman says that if you put them into a computer system you can tell that they are nearly perfect like geometrically perfect equilateral triangles i don't know how you do that when you're shooting somebody but sure okay she says that if you put them in a a computer the two perfect equilateral triangles come together to quote form a pentagram now i'm gonna let you think about that for a second and i'm going to remind you that a pentagram is a five pointed star surrounded by a circle how do two equilateral triangles make a five-pointed star that is a star of david you dum-dum that's not even you're trying to make this satanic and that's not even the case either either that or these or that or the kid who did it is stupid i don't that does not make a pentagram and even the symbol of satanism is an inverted pentagram listen so no that's not right it's 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 a star of david so one of these people either kanetta you're dumb or the person who shot those into those people is dumb one of them's dumb 
I don't try to make a connection to Satanism if you're not, you're talking baloney right now. So that was just my weird little tangent of like, you don't know what you're talking about and you're trying to put, you know, two and two together to make six. And that's not how that works. This is not how any of this works. So uh, our boy, Berkeley Bell, believed that the evidence mounted against them. So Natasha had an upside cross, um, upside down cross spray painted in her bedroom and, like, everything was coached by her lawyer, the daughter of Satan, that she owned books on witchcraft. And I think this guy is just really scared of something he does not understand. Okay, I mean, shoot, I have books on witchcraft. Does that mean I practice witchcraft? No. I also own a Bible. Does that mean I'm Christian? No. You're allowed to own books and not be sent to prison for the rest of your life for murder. Okay just clarifying that you can own, you can own whatever books. It is 2019. You can own whatever books you want to own. Nobody's, nobody can stop you. There's books. So the fact that he's like, well, she owned a book on witchcraft. She's the devil. Like, that's not how that works. All right. Um, so he felt sympathy towards the teen's family, but none for the teens themselves, which I don't think you should feel any sympathy for the teen's families. The teen's families are what kind of mess these teens up to begin with, but also, okay, um, the state was seeking the death penalty against the four adults, so Dean, Crystal, Natasha, and Joe, and the strictest possible sentencing for the minors, Jason and Karen. So, Berkeley Bell can be quoted as saying, spiritual evil, that's what's taught in our religion, but I don't know that it was ever quite driven home before as emphatically as it has been in this case. So, let me uh, just remind you, separation of church and state, so it doesn't matter how you feel religiously about these people that should not come into your judgment of this crime okay just this case has a lot of reminders of how like how a real rational thinking individual prosecutes somebody and if you can't not let your like if you can't separate your religion from you being a district attorney then like maybe you shouldn't be a district attorney how about that so <laughs> I just, I feel very strongly about just, you know, it, just be open-minded. It doesn't matter how religious you are, but you should at least be open-minded to other people. I don't think, it's like the Salem Witch Trials. You're scared of something you don't understand, so how many people are you going to kill and punish for something they don't even, they're not even doing, but you just don't understand and you don't like them? It doesn't make any sense. Like, let's not repeat history. So, because the majority of the group was facing the death penalty, when a plea deal was offered, it was quickly accepted. Um, the deal was that the whole group would plead guilty to first-degree murder and waive their rights to a trial, and good old Berkeley Bell wouldn't seek the death penalty. Um, the caveat to this was that all of them had to agree to the deal, and they did. So all six were sentenced to life without the possibility of parole, convicted for murder uh, convicted for felony murder as participants in felony kidnapping and carjacking that resulted in three murders and an attempted murder. So they all got three life sentences plus 25 years. And uh, I don't remember who said it, but it was, it. the quote is, it doesn't matter who pulled the trigger because they're all complicit by being there, which I don't necessarily agree with. I think, as I said before, it's four, five people, five of those people didn't pull the trigger, at least four, in my opinion, and these people are being prosecuted and put, they're going to spend the rest of their lives in jail for being in the wrong place at the wrong time. I don't think that's fair. Um, 
I feel as though, yes, these kids were goth and outsiders, whatever, but that community pushed the Satanism thing way harder than it needed to be. And it's, in my opinion, almost like they needed to tell themselves that these kids were dirty, evil Satanists and goths so that they didn't have to think of, uh, you know, they didn't have to deal with the guilt of putting several, probably mostly innocent kids in prison for the rest of their lives. Um, I guess whatever you have to tell yourselves to sleep better at night, (laughs) you know, you do you, I guess, but that's on your conscience and that's karmically what'll come back to you. Um, so really the injustice of this case is astounding. It seems that, you know, as I said, five of those people didn't pull the trigger and then became guilty by association. Um, they may have at the time been scared into taking the plea bargain, obviously, but if they had a more fair trial, some of those individuals could probably be out of prison today. Uh, and I mean, I know for a fact, I read that Natasha has been trying to get, she she literally just wants a fair trial. She wants to go on trial again and try to redo it better. And somebody had asked her, um, well, what, what would you do if they reinstated the death penalty? And she was more or less like, that's the chance I'd have to take. I mean, they... I wonder how it would have hashed out if they could have all been tried separately. I know the death penalty was on the table, but I think if you... I know the defense... They were young, and I think the defense attorneys really pushed them in that direction, but had they been less scared and everything, you know, kind of took its time and they really did go through the trial, I don't... I wonder who would have been found, you know, guilty, and I don't know if any of them would have you know, suffered from the death penalty at the end of the day. But, you know, who knows? So um, that, my friends, is the um, Lily Lid murder. Well, the Lily Lid murders. Um, and as you can see here, I feel strongly there are more victims than four in this case. And maybe someday, you know, they'll get hashed out and maybe we'll get justice for some of these people who are wrongly in prison. Um, with that, that is my crime for this week. Uh, and, uh, cheers and happy True Crime Tuesday.